Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh passionately begins a new series covering the book of Romans. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, Set Apart for the Gospel. attention to the word of the living God. Romans chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. We will not even come close to making our way through all of those verses, but we'll read the first seven verses together, this first kind of section. So Romans 1, beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the living God. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who is declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please bow with me. Oh God, I ask for your help. And Lord, every one of us in this room, we need your help. Father, you have used your word And you have used particularly this book and the truths that you have put in it to bring about entire movement that changed the course of continents. Father, I I ask, I beg that nothing less than that would come as our church studies through this. God, I beg you that over the next however long it takes us to work through this book, that a multitude of souls will be saved as they understand the gospel through this. And God, I pray for your sons and daughters who, who already have turned to Christ and who know you, Lord, the way that you have transformed lives throughout history through the truths in this book. I, I, I beg, oh God, that nothing less than that will happen in our church, oh God. We're praying and asking for miracles. We're praying and asking for life transformation. I ask, oh God, that throughout the course of this study, missionaries would be raised up from our church family. You would call out more and more um, to devote their lives to the service of your kingdom, that you give us a holy vision of joy in seeing your glory, in comprehending the weight of your worth. Father, please bless us. I pray your blessing on the whole study. And God, I pray your blessing on this morning. Please, God, work amazing things as we look at the truths that you have for us. Lord, for the praise of the glory of your grace, we are asking these things and we ask them through the name of your son. Amen. Augustine. The mighty theologian from the fourth century, a great gift that God gave to the church was converted one day when he read a verse from Romans 13. Martin Luther not only was awakened, converted when he um, studied through the book of Romans, but chapter 1, verse 17, that single verse sparked the Reformation. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, um, which, which, by the way, back in its early days was a movement that was amazingly uh, used of God. The, the only uh, movement that has planted a church in every county of the United States and at least at a season of time was faithfully preaching the gospel. So John Wesley, the founder of that movement was converted one night when he went to a Bible study and the group was studying through Romans and they were reading Luther's commentary on the Romans. We could keep going through great figures from history who either learned the gospel for the first time or just were converted, but I would bet that more people in this very room 
came to understand the gospel, or maybe even your moment of conversion came from the book of Romans more than any other place in the Bible. I know that was the case with me. There have probably been more people understand the gospel from this book than any other book. Samuel Coleridge said, I think the epistle to the Romans is the most profound work in existence. John Knox, the Scottish reformer, said Romans is unquestionably, unquestionably the most important theological work ever written. John Calvin, the reformer, said to understand Romans is to understand the Bible. We are in no way saying that this book is more inspired than the rest of the Bible, but we are saying that there are different works that God has done different things in. And when it comes to clarity in understanding the gospel and a vision of the bigness of God, he's done special things in this book. And so it is with, I am not kidding, a childlike giddiness that I have that we come to this book. I, I, yeah, okay. One of the first conversations that we had when we were planting this church amongst the first core group of six people, one of the conversations we had was when we studying through Romans. I said, I ain't ready yet. I want some time to work through it myself to come to better understand it before we would look at this massive book. And so for about the last four-ish years, um, I've been with my mentor in some personal devotional study, working through sentence by sentence, phrase by phrase, word by word, to try to come to as deep of an understanding as I can come to before we would come through this study. Numerous great theologians of history have said that it was a study through this book that changed them. And if you'll allow me a couple more personal remarks about this book, when I was in college, a group of us friends were wrestling through some of the big questions of the Bible and some of the big questions of just this world and life and the meaning of life and faith and all of this. And so we got together and we were seeking the certain scriptures to get some answers. And we kept finding that so many of our answers were coming from this book. So somebody suggested, well, why don't we just study through it? We'll just meet together and do this. And what started off as something very casual ended up becoming something remarkable. It became almost like its own little movement itself. Around the campus on our Bible college, people would ask one another, you going to Romans tonight? Every Wednesday night, starting at 10 p.m., yeah, college schedule, <laughs> starting at 10 p.m., we would sort of shimmy open one of the classroom doors on our campus, and from 10 to midnight, we studied through this book together. And uh, my memories from that season are just magical. C.S. Lewis said that uh, our memories of things are oftentimes better than what they actually were. Um, when my friends and I talk about that season, we get a little like this, excuse me. We get, we get a little misty-eyed and dreamy-eyed of, of thinking about what God showed us. I would count that as the season that I came to know God. And I have begged God in leading up to this study that as life transforming as it was in the Reformation, as life transforming as it has been in the lives of so many great theologians, that it would be in this church as well, that we would see the glory of God in a way that we never have before. And I'm telling you, when that happens, you will never be the same. Enough about my story with Romans. Let's talk a little bit about the book itself. Romans is the most exhaustive explanation of the gospel that we have in Scripture. It is the quintessential explanation of justification. Now, if you're new to studying the Bible, um, we've used a few words already that you might not be familiar with. Words like conversion and born again and justification. We're going to be getting there, even some today, and we're going to be talking a lot about this justification. Justification is the act where God takes the sinner from guilty to not guilty. It is the act by which God brings the new birth conversion. There are other aspects of the gospel that some other portions of scripture give more um, exhaustive explanation of. 
So for instance, there's some other parts of the gospel like, the, like um, who Jesus is. That's a necessary part of the gospel. And the book of John is probably the clearest place in the Bible that God gives us an explanation of who Jesus is, his divinity and humanity together in one person. The book of Hebrews is probably the most exhaustive explanation of the part of the gospel about Jesus is the fulfillment of every type and shadow from the Old Testament and he has brought the new covenant. That's a necessary part to understanding the gospel. Romans is the fullest explanation that we have of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, more than anywhere else in the Bible. And so for this reason, this has been probably the most studied book by the church since the time of the Reformation, because this has been so pertinent to our needs. The central idea of the book you can see in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, if you look there real quick, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The gospel is glorious. It shows you the glory of God like nothing else ever will. God shows you his glory in many ways. Uh, Wednesday night, God showed us glory. After, after uh, our worship time here, we walked out in the parking lot, a whole bunch of us, and just looked at that sunset. We were seeing the handiwork of God, and this is God displaying his glory. The gospel shows you a thousand times more of the jaw-dropping speech-ending, soul-enthralling glory of God, more than any sunset ever could. And in the gospel, God displays his righteousness. God has pardoned sinners, but he has not done it by fudging righteousness. He has not violated justice. He has upheld righteousness and mercy. How can this be through the blood of his son? And the book of Romans gives us the fullest explanation of how he has done that. The glory of God in the gospel and the righteousness of God displayed. This book is filled with highlight chapters. In chapter three, one of the highlight chapters that is here, Dr. Jim Moore has said that the whole rest of the Bible is commentary on verses 21 to 26. Chapter eight has been called the most glorious chapter in the Bible. The book has uh, two parts, two main divisions. Chapters one through 11 is the heart of the explanation of the gospel. And then chapters 12 to 16, you kind of see a therefore there at the beginning of chapter 12 is application from the gospel. So for instance, chapters 1 through 11, which will take us a significant amount of time to study through, chapters 1 through 11 is just straight theology. In 11 chapters, there will be no instruction on how to manage your family or how to grow your prayer life. There will be no proverbial life hacks. It is 11 chapters of drinking from a fire hydrant of theology about the gospel of Jesus Christ and how God has saved you. And you know, there's always a, there's always a movement regarding that, that I want to address. There's always kind of that movement of a hesitancy about doctrine, about theology. You've, you've heard it. It goes something like, I, I don't need theology. This doesn't matter to me. Just, just give me something relevant. Give me something practical. Tell me how to be a better dad. Tell me how to manage my finances. Give me something relevant. And so let me, let me address it. We, we have in the past, but let, let me address this here. Number one, if you do not think that how your soul has been saved from the very torments of hell and brought into eternal life is relevant, I don't know what to tell you. What do you think is important? And secondly, God could not disagree with you more. <laughs> it would be impossible for God to disagree with that view more than what he does. 
And thirdly, theology, truth, doctrine, it shapes you. It shapes you when it's done rightly. There's a way to do it wrongly. Maybe you've been exposed to it done wrongly. But when theology leads to worship, it shapes you. Who you are as a product of what you believe. Who you are as a product of how big or small you see God. We need practical instruction. That's why the Bible has tons of it. But listen to me, here's one of the things that's sometimes missed. Even after we get practical instruction, okay, like the Bible tells you, here's how you be a, a godly dad, okay? Even after we get those things, having the instruction doesn't guarantee that we'll follow through on it, right? We all have hundreds of little pieces of instruction from the Bible that we're not fully following through on. So as I show we need something else. And what we need is there is a fire that is missing. There is a soul enriching, vitality producing, fullness of life kind of vision that you are missing until you see God. That's, that's a metaphorical way that the Bible will speak of coming to know God. The Bible will call, talk about that as seeing God. Your soul coming to feel the infinite worth of God. The more you grow in that, the more of a fire to, I, I want to obey God. I want to sweat, bleed, puke, and die to obey King Jesus that burns inside of you. The more we come to see God. And scripture is the only place you're going to get that. And Romans is a book that God has used in many lives to show this. And listen to me, friends, as this happens, okay, as theology shapes you, you're going to become a better dad. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna grow in obedience and practical things because God is changing your character. So we are going to see 11 chapters of theology and then come to see application from the gospel. God means the gospel to be the very center of your lives and every part of why we live obedience flowing out of the gospel. Gospel living, a life worthy of the gospel. The Bible will speak of this. All right. Well, there's a whole lot more introduction that I could give, but we, we need to get started working through it. So let me tell you a little bit about the section we're in right here. Verses one through seven is introduction to this book. And in this introduction, even in the introduction, truth is just pouring out like a waterfall. Here are three main points to see in the intro. We won't make our way through all three of these. But number one, Paul's identity in the gospel. Number two, the subject of the gospel. And then number three, the privileges of the gospel. Today, we're only going to get through the very first point, um, Paul's identity in the gospel. So let's get started. Point number one, and then I'll give you some sub points here. In this part of Paul introducing himself, he's going to say three things about his identity. But who he is in Christ, it's more than a job. It's, it's more than a partial instruction. It's more than hobby for Paul. Who he is in Christ is his very identity. So the very first thing that he says about his identity in the gospel is that he is a, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. You see that there in verse one. Greek word for bondservant here is one you may be familiar with. It's the Greek word doulos. Other places in the Bible it's translated as servant, but I believe most of the time it's translated as slave. And there is something very powerful about the way that the book opens up. The very opening of the book just reads like this. Paul, slave. Slave of Christ Jesus. Several of the biblical writers all happily declare themselves to belong to Jesus. They're owned by Jesus. They are his slave. This very book is going to go on to tell us that everyone who is in Christ, if you claim the name of Christ, then you are a slave of Christ. The natural man can't stand that kind of thought of being, being owned by someone, of belonging to someone. But the Christian, the Christian is one who owns this title. 
The Christian is one who owns this title of, of belonging. And, and listen to me, the more we grow in Christ, the happier we are about it. The, 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 the more we rejoice in declaring, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. If you cannot own the fact that you belong to Christ, that you are a slave to Christ, I think I'd have to tell you that I doubt your conversion. The Christian, the Christian is, is a slave of Christ. And if you cannot own that, then I'd have to ask you, what do you think it meant when you turned to Christ? What did you think repentance is about? Christ is our King. He is our Lord and He is our Master. If you can't own that, then you haven't bowed. Friends, there's something remarkable about the fact that the world is always fighting authority. The world is always resisting authority, um, rebelling and wanting to be their own Lord. This is where you and I once were. But the Christian walks around in this world happily declaring, I belong to the one whom I love. And I think that this right here, this concept and the, the ignoring of this, this part of our salvation is one of the reasons why we see such a shallow approach to God. It's one of the reasons why we have seen such a, such a drifting from obedience to God. Why we in our culture see such a soft Christianity. There is there's no question, it's no secret that there is a massive movement in our culture uh, amongst those who claim the name of Christ to take the approach of only wanting to talk about the easy parts of the Bible. Listen to me, the parts of the Bible that even unbelievers can rejoice in. The Bible has a lot of truths that even people who hate Scripture can rejoice in some of the things. They appeal to the flesh. All right? All you got to do is visit a funeral. All you got to do is visit a funeral to see even those who hate Christ, hate the Scriptures, there's still a whole lot of loving the idea of heaven. There's still a whole lot of loving the, the eternal promises of come with that. They may reject a thousand sentences from the Bible, but they're clinging to that one. And the Bible has an awful lot of truth that even unbelievers will rejoice in. And there's always this movement to only talk about that stuff and neglect the thousand truths that unbelievers don't like and that call us to die to our flesh, not feed our flesh. If you're going to be a Christian, you've got to know that you are signing up to be a slave of Christ. Christian, God is your friend. God is your father. Jesus is your brother. You in Christ, you are sons and daughters of God. You are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That is all happy news. And our relationship with God is not just one dimensional. He's not just your father and he's also not just your master. But if we only focus on the fact that God is our friend, it's no wonder why there are so many who feel no obligation to obey. There's no wonder why there are so many who do not serve. Can, can, I, can I be real with you? The, the national numbers of church members, church attendees, I, I do not believe it's the case here. If it were, I would be really tempted to quit, uh, feeling like an abysmal failure, okay? But the national numbers among church members of those who actually jump in and serve are less than 5%. That's disgusting. Could it be that it is linked with a soft approach to God that only wants to speak of him as friend and never as Lord, King, and Master? If you are going to please God, if you are going to be mature in Christ, you have to rejoice in declaring, I'm a slave of Christ. And Christian, if you do not see yourself with the identity of a slave, then you won't live like it. And by the way, if you're thinking to yourself, maybe a little squeamish, like, Pastor, slavery is a hot topic today. We don't want to talk. This has always been controversial. This has always been. In John 8, when Jesus brought this up, Jesus had some hard things to say. In John 8, it was controversial then. It's controversial today. And in fact, what Jesus revealed there in John 8, what later in the book of Romans will declare is this. You are a slave 
even if you're not a slave of Jesus. There's no one who's just free. You're your own Lord. You submit to someone. And what Jesus says is there are only two possible ultimate masters. Anyone who is not a slave of Christ, then you are submitting to your sin. And of course, this is objected. Of course, there are those who do not want to believe this. But if, you, if you're not yet convinced of the Bible, you're not convinced that I'm speaking truth here when I tell you this, that if you're not a slave of Jesus, you're a slave of sin, and you want to prove this, there's a, there's a very easy, simple solution to how to prove this, that you're not a slave to sin. Know what it is? Stop it. Stop. You know, just, just quit. You know, you can quit anytime you want to, right? Just quit. Not live your own moral code. That's always what the world is doing. Okay, changing the law so that the things that I do, well, they're actually okay because of my justified reason that I give right here. No, no, not live your own moral code. Put away your lust, your greed, your anger. Remove all your impure thoughts. Start worshiping God like he tells us to in the scriptures and just do it for a month. You do it for a month, you'll convince me. Not a month, a week, a week. You cannot do it. If you are not in Christ, you are submitting to sin. You are submitting to someone. And here's the deal. Jesus reveals that there is a spiritual being behind your sin. We'll at least say a great deal of your sin. He has the power to suggest thoughts he, he offers influence and the soul that is not submitting to Christ is submitting to your sin, which Jesus reveals is ultimately submitting to the spiritual being behind your sin. And so friends, this is why the call to repent, think about it in these terms, it's a call to change masters. The call to repent is a call to change who you listen to. To what king you submit to? Because you are submitting to a king. You're looking to someone. Someone sits on the throne over your heart that you look to. The call to repent is to change masters, change kings. The call to trust Christ means you stop trusting your own thoughts on everything. It means you stop listening to the, the news in the evening on their opinion of morality and meaning of life. It means you stop listening to the celebrities weighing in, telling you how you really ought to live. It means taking your trust out of all of these different places and putting your trust in Christ. I listen to Christ. That's why, friends, those who claim to be Christians, but yet support some of these social agendas that are in defiance of Scripture, we do have candid conversations to say, I've got some doubts here. I don't know how you can say you submit to Christ and yet support same-sex marriage or any other number of things. You're listening to, you're trusting in the voice of someone else, not Christ. Come and be a happy slave of Christ and make this your identity. That's the first way Paul identifies himself. Here's the second. He says, called as an apostle. Uh, look over to Acts 9 for a moment. Acts, right before the book of Romans, Acts chapter 9. This is the section where Paul has just had his uh, Damascus vision. The Lord Jesus has appeared to him. He is now blinded and God is sending someone to Paul uh, to go and, <coughs> excuse me, to go and uh, minister to him. And the one who uh, God called on this, Ananias, he says, uh, Lord, you sure you want me to do this? I hear this guy kills Christians. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. When Jesus says that Paul was a chosen instrument, not only do you have the truth there, that Paul was sovereignly called by God to salvation, meaning Paul wasn't looking for Jesus. Jesus came to him. God initiated this. Not only was Paul sovereignly a called and appointed to salvation, but also to service. 
and not just any service, but a special service, the position of an apostle. Uh, Jump to Galatians 1 for a moment there. Galatians chapter 1, or you can just listen as I read it. Galatians 1, 1, look what it says, Paul, an apostle. Not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who God raised, uh, who God raised him from the dead. Paul's calling as an apostle was to a specific position of authoritatively proclaiming the gospel. All right, so you might think of within a church, churches have pastors. Uh, The kingdom of God in general has missionaries. Uh, Our church has some teachers and such. Those are some titles. Those are some positions. Well, think of apostles as sort of like the preachers, the missionaries, the teachers, the shepherds, and the theologians of the church with a capital C in the days of the early church. One of the things that uh, scripture would go on to say, Ephesians 4, is that Jesus, he is the chief cornerstone of the church, of this house that God is building, but he laid a foundation with the apostles. Okay, so in the early church days, you had something similar to what we have today. Don't think it's any different. In the early church days, you had all kinds of different preachers saying all kinds of different things. Different ideas, different beliefs, different doctrines. How do we know it's true? Who do we listen to? The answer is, The apostles, the apostles, and similar today, all kinds of different preachers saying all kinds of different things, all kinds of different movements, all kinds of different craziness. How do we know what to believe? How do we know who to listen to? The answer is the apostles. Oh, pastor, do you mean new apostles that have been passed down through the ages? No, I don't. Okay. Now I bring this part up because there are several groups that teach a sort of progression, succession of apostles coming from those days. Anytime you talk to somebody who believes that, always ask them what verse of the Bible, what passages do you get that from? After the studying, slobbering, and not being able to get there, they may come up with something like Matthew 16, where, that's the passage where Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, Peter, or excuse me, Jesus then responds to Peter. I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. And there are a couple of groups who be like, see, God just said right there, there's going to be a succession of a couple thousand years of apostles trickling down. That is very obviously not what is going on in that passage. You have to write uh, several volumes of books and then push that into the Bible to even remotely come close to a belief like that. The age of the apostles was a temporary age of some temporary but special authority for the church to be built upon this. This meant that Paul carried the highest authority on earth that could be had in the church. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 6, or I'll just read it to you here. 1 Thessalonians 2, 6, Paul is talking to um, the church of Thessalonica. He's talking about when I was there with you and calling them to look on some things. Verse 6, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. By the way, all of those who want to call themselves apostles today, they're always seeking glory. They're always seeking some kind of earthly honor. Kiss my ring. They're always trying to trump themselves above everyone else. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. Paul's position as a called apostle carried a temporary sense and season of authority, a special place of service. And several places in the New Testament Paul refers to the fact that God specifically called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That was his role, his niche that God had him to fulfill. So here's the third thing. So we've been told that he calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. Secondly, called as an apostle. Number three, verse one, set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart for the gospel. This book is going to be all about the gospel. It's in verse one. It's going to be in the last sentence that is spoken in this book, and it is going to be dozens of places in between. The gospel is the good news of God's work to rescue people from the torments of hell and bring them 
into the splendor of everlasting, enthralling joy that comes in being right with God, in relationship with God. And He has done this through His Son, and you will receive this by repentance and faith. That's the gospel. What God has done in Christ to save a people to Himself. And the gospel is the message where we show how you can have this. For some of you, if you're new to studying the Bible, then that sentence contains some parts that might be new to you. Maybe you're not sure about. Particularly that part about hell and that I said that you need to be rescued from it. My friends, the story of Scripture, it's the story of history. It's the story of this world. The story of Scripture is not just like the religious part of this world, but then, you know, then there's all the other stuff. No, no, no. The story of Scripture is the story of what this world is about, even if the world misses the point of history. And the Scripture is all about how God made a people, made a people for Himself. God gave us this most amazing of gifts that we were created in relationship with Him. We lived under His blessing. We lived in the joy of being in relationship with God. But the first of mankind, they looked at that blessing, they counted it as nothing, and they tossed it aside for some cheap thrills of sin. Friends, that's the story of mankind in general, And that same story is played out in every single one of our lives as individuals. We can't just blame the first humans. We've all participated. Listen to me, every single one of us, we've treated God like a chump. We have looked at his blessings. We have looked at the possibility of reward and we said, don't want it. But this sin, that looks great and we have gone to it. Every single one of us, there are no exceptions. We have looked at God's gifts with contempt. And we have, like a criminal, looked at his laws and chosen disobedience. We've committed a lot of sins accidentally. Don't think that we're not accountable for those. But we've committed a lot accidentally. But we have also knowingly looked at God's laws and made decisions to disobey him. And what the Bible shows is that's treating God with contempt. It's treating ourselves like our own Lord. And friends, the first three chapters of this book are going to paint a picture of man's heart like you have maybe never seen it before. God is going to show you that you need rescued. It's not just those other people out there. And it is not merely the serial killers and Hitlers of history. You, you might count yourself very moral, but you need rescued. You have sins and those sins must be forgiven and God has made a way for them to be forgiven, but you don't get to make up your own way. The way is through Christ. And if this is your first time to hear some of these kinds of things from the Bible, so I'm, I'm saying that you are an evildoer. Um, the Bible is saying that you have broken God's law, you have guilt, and you are headed towards a hell unless you turn to Christ. First time you hear those kinds of things, there can be a little bit of, I may have showed up at the wrong church this morning. This seems a little kooky, okay? But here's what, here's what can happen. So I just want to encourage you in this. In nine minutes, you can find out whether or not I'm lying or all the other messages in the world are lying. In nine minutes. It will take you about nine minutes to read Romans chapters one through three. So this afternoon in nine minutes, you could come come to one of two conclusions. That church is kooky, ain't going back. Or all of these messages that are going on in the world have been lying to me, but what can I do? This is the word of God. And friends, just in, in great clarity, God is going to show you that you have done evil and your evil dwells in you and makes you guilty before God. If you have not yet turned to Christ, you are in almost the most desperate position you could possibly be in in existence. There is no ship going under, no child caught in a fire, no soldier behind enemy lines who is in a more desperate place than you are right now unless you count hell itself.
if you do not have the forgiveness of your sins. Because there is a wrath that God is bringing on this world. That is because he is righteous. This book is going to declare the righteousness and justice of God. And you rightly deserve this. I rightly deserve this. But the good news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that God has made a way to take those who are guilty and bring them into a place of pardon. To take those who are enslaved to sin and bring them to be slaves of Christ. Those in the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of light. And God is going to show you these things. If your sins are forgiven, then you are brought into a world of joy that is possible only in being in right relationship with God. Sin is the thing that is keeping you from God. If your sin problem can be taken care of, then you can have the joy in Him. And the gospel is the news of how God has done this. And friends, this is why God has called the church, God has commanded every Christian that we are to be those who tell the world this news. This is why He's given us the command. He's hinged history on this. That we Christians are to bring this message, the message of the gospel, to every nation, every people group, every language on the planet. And God actually says that he's not coming back. Jesus is not returning until we finish this mission. This is what history is about. So when Paul says here that he has been set apart for the gospel, this is what he means. God appointed him for the task of telling the gospel. That was his life mission. And friends, in a similar way, not exactly but with a similar mission, a similar calling, Christian, you are set apart for the gospel. Let me steal a little bit of thunder um, from verse six. Then when we get there, look down at verse six from this passage right here, among whom you also are the called Jesus Christ. You see what he's doing there? He starts off, Paul, slave of Jesus Christ. I've been called out by God. I've been set apart for something. I'm set apart for the gospel. Then he comes to verse six. You also, Christian, you're called out as well. As Paul was a slave of Christ, you, Christian, you're a slave of Christ. As, call, as Paul was called out, you were called out. Not to the same position, but to a same ministry, a same mission. As Paul was set apart for the gospel, you are set apart for the gospel. Christian, this is your life. The gospel is your life. The gospel is the message, not just of one little thing that God has done. The gospel is the message of what God is about. What he has been doing before the world was made. Friends, to follow the storyline. Before the foundation of the world, God designed a plan. As he created this world, he has been unfolding his work of the gospel. The gospel is not some small subpoint of the Bible. The gospel is how you sum up the Bible. The gospel is not merely one part of all the thousands of things that God has done in history. The gospel is the point of history. The cross of what God has accomplished in him. It's not just one item, it is the item that stands as the apex of all of history. Christian, in your life, there are a thousand truths you need to know from the Bible. The gospel is the king and the center of all of them. The gospel is what our lives are about. We've been set aside, we've been set apart for the gospel. God is saving a people through the gospel. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's doing that through the gospel. God is filling the earth with the knowledge of his glory. He's doing that through the gospel. So let me apply this. If your life is not about the gospel, then you will one day find your works in a pile of ashes. The point of this life is not to try to be good so that God will bless your agenda. The point of this life is to see that God has called us into a holy calling. He has swept you up into the great adventure, the great epic of history, the great romance, the story of history. This is his agenda. 
Our calling is to get on board with his agenda, not do whatever we want and try to get God to bless what we want. He has set you aside for the gospel. Christian, let's not waste our lives on anything else. Make the thing that you think about every day the gospel. Make the culture of your family the gospel. Make the aim of your life the gospel. A lot of different ways that we will each with our own opportunities, gifts, and positions in life by God. We'll all do that in different ways. It will look different. Your way won't look exactly like Paul, but we all have the same mission. Lives set aside for the gospel. This was Paul's identity. This isn't just what he did. This is who he was. And similarly, you friend, your self-identity, how you see yourself. It's a massive part of your life and it'll determine how you live and what you do. When you meet somebody for the first time and somebody says, well, who are you? Tell me a little bit about yourself. How do you think of yourself? How do you define yourself? For Paul, it was all about, I'm set aside for Christ. Let's adopt the same thing. This book is going to show you glorious truths about how you are a son or daughter of God, citizen of God's kingdom, heir of God, joint heirs of Christ. You are beloved. You are one whom God is working all things for your eternal good, but you are also a slave, a called out one, a saint, and set apart for the gospel. Let me say a word here. If you have never done this whole thing we're talking about of this whole being saved thing, and maybe even that language still sounds a little funny to you, what I most want you to see is this. This isn't like just our church's thing. Like, don't just sit there and think like, oh, this church, that's their weird thing. But you know, the church down the street, they got their weird thing. Everybody's got their own weird thing. This isn't our church's thing. Read, open the Bible. Open the Bible. Open and read. You're going to see that salvation is the message that runs all the way through. Read Romans and see how God sums up all of reality in what he's done in Christ. In fact, he says in Ephesians that the summing up of all things is in Christ. Remove your trust from yourself. Place your trust in Christ. Change masters. Take your heart's dependency and affection in yourself or sin or whatever your thing is and turn it to Christ. And then the Bible says you need to pray and call out to him. Leave your sin, trust in Christ and ask God for the forgiveness of your sins and to grant you eternal life. If you want to do that today, let's do it. Don't hold back. Don't wait. Trust in Christ. And I'm going to give you the opportunity here in just a moment. We're going to transition now to the time that we take the Lord's Supper. And here in just a little bit, I'm going to give, I'll give about a minute of silence as we usually do. I'm going to give some instructions to both Christian and, and non-Christian here before we take. The Bible says that when we approach the Lord's Supper, it is something we're to take seriously. The Bible says that even for the Christian, we're not to partake in an unworthy manner. There's supposed to be a sense of reverence as we approach this. The Bible says we can eat and drink condemnation on ourselves by wrongly approaching the Lord's Supper. So there's a, there's a sense of weight as we come to this remembrance. For the Christian, you who have trusted in Christ, there needs to be confession of sin. The Bible says examination of ourselves. That's, that's one of the reasons why we always try to tell you a week in advance so that through the week there can be some intentional heart examination and confession of sin. But we're going to give a little bit of silence just in case you got some last minute confession of sin to make before God. But if you're, if you're not a Christian, if you've not yet turned to Him, not out of any meanness, but the Bible says that you should not partake because... This is a remembrance of what Christ has done to save souls. So the very first way you could honor him today is by trusting in Christ. It is by looking to him to be saved. And if you do that and then follow that up with obedience, then we welcome you to partake with us. You don't have to be a member of this church. 
um, to partake if you're visiting with us, but you do have to have trusted in Christ and followed that up with believer's baptism in order to partake with us. So I'm going to give us just about a minute of silence here. I'll close in prayer, then I'll call forward some help as we partake together. So please bow for a moment. Oh God, our Father, Lord, we as individuals come together and confess that we are sinners. We do sinful things, deeds, acts, but at the heart of it, we are sinners. We are those who rebel. Forgive us, O oh God. We want to obey you. And God, we as a church family confess. Lord, we recognize that we know there are ways that we wrong you and fall short of what you have called us to. Forgive us and look on us with mercy. Please do not deal with us according to what we deserve, but deal with us, we pray, according to your mercy in Christ. For, forgive us, O oh God. Cleanse our relationship with you, O oh God. And Lord, as we remember the broken body and shed blood of your son, help us, O God, to remember with worship and gratitude. We pray this in the name of Christ. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, Set Apart for the Gospel. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, Follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.